What? I didn't even know I was doing that. You're like, you just have to double down and like win big. You said, there were like two things that you said. And I was just like, oh my God. Is it me? Is it you? Do I have gambling on the brain? I mean, I do. I do. Ready, everyone? Ready. <laughs> okay. Three, two. Blast off. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host with the most, Chris Savage. Uh, Threw that one in there for you, everyone. Uh, And I'm joined (laughs) as always by Sylvie LeBeau, my co-host and podcast uh, producer extraordinaire. Sylvie, we got a great show today. Got a great show. Got a great guest. Yes, we have Colin Niederkorn, who's the founder and CEO of Customer.io, uh, I've known Colin for almost 10 years at this point. He's built a really great business. Um, Customer IO is an automated messaging platform for tech-savvy marketers. Basically, it makes it easy for you to send messages uh, to your customers through your website, through an app, through a text, through uh, even Slack, I think. Um, and you can build rules and all that kind of cool stuff. So anyway, we have a great episode talking about remote work talking about growing by investing a ton into your product and even talking about going to space. So a lot of good stuff for you in this one. Got space in there. Got space in there. Um, But Sylvie, what's going on with you this week? It's been a while since we shot our uh, in-person episode. It's weird. It's weird. It's weird to not be in person now. It's weird to not be in person. Yeah. It's weird to be on Zoom again. Um, What has got me talking too loud? Uh, Well, did a little stint in Atlantic City this weekend, and oh, uh, I have been talking way too loud about blackjack. <laughs> blackjack is my game. I own that game now. I was like, you should have seen me. You should have seen me because uh, I really came in as a noob, and I left as a winner. I left as a champion. That's great. That's great. Are you a, a blackjack fan? Love blackjack, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, actually, in college... Uh, with, the, with when they had the first online casinos, they <laughs> had this thing where if you put like a hundred bucks in, they'd give you a hundred bucks for free, but oh, you had damn. to bet through it a certain percentage of the money. So it'd be like, oh, once you bet through 300% of what you put in, you can just take it out. And so we would sign up for all these casinos and I'd put $100 in here and $200 in there. And oh it would get doubled. God. And then I would just play blackjack exactly by the book. And if it worked out right, you'd get up, you know, you'd be down a little bit or up a little bit, but you'd get that, that bonus. Uh, and You're an it was, animal. It You're was a blackjack an absolute animal. delight. And I made like a couple thousand dollars freshman year of Whoa. college. And I bought an ovation guitar. Ah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I was expecting. <laughs> But um, <laughs> oh god! Do you still have that guitar? Oh yeah, that's the yep. question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just like ripping chords. Nope, it sits in the basement. It did fund that money. Funded my ability to play cool. poker with friends, which was fun. There you go. Mm-hmm. I was trying to flex on like making a little more than a hundred dollars. You're like, you know, a couple of thousand, but whatever. I felt great about it. I can only go up from here. But anyway, uh, what's got you talking too loud? Or are we saving that? Yeah, I feel like Colin's going to be into what I want to talk about. I think so, too. Okay. Let's go into the episode. All right. Uh, 
Um, Colin, <laughs> thank you for being here. It's so great to see you. Thanks for coming and talking to us. Nice to see you. How's it going? How's life over there? Um, life is pretty good. I can't uh, can't complain about too much. Where where is over there? Oh, over on on this side of the world. <laughs> so, I'm in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I think in the in the past couple of weeks, our forest our forests have started to burn already. And I saw like pictures from New York of yes. the haze, yeah, orange, yeah. really orange sky. We got uh, that. But so far, the winds are blowing that way and not this way, and it's been a pretty beautiful summer, other than uh, torturous heat a few weeks ago. Well, lucky you, Colin. Lucky you that you didn't get the <laughs> the smoke and the particulate in the air, and you can't leave your house. So I guess you're just you're just flying high over there. Um, <laughs> speaking of flying high. Um, obviously, Colin, as you know, this show is called Talking Too Loud, and I have a tendency to talk too loud when I get too excited about things. And I have been talking very loud about getting very high, high up into space. Um, <laughs> and with, um, you like that transition, Sylvia? <laughs> yeah. And um, I feel like we had these two, these two launches last week, um, the Virgin Galactic launch with Pranson getting up there. Um, the Blue Origin launch with Bezos getting up there. And like, I find myself like coming to this conversation a lot. Like, what do you think about all of this? I, I think it's really inspiring. And uh, I didn't used to follow space when I was in my teens and 20s because it really wasn't that interesting. Yeah. But I think in the past few years, ever since SpaceX started landing their boosters. Yeah. I've just been fascinated by it. And I've watched so many launches and I watch launches with my son who's four years old. Uh, and I'm trying to encourage him to get excited about space. We built like um, a space plane Lego set together. And right now he's at science camp, but he's calling it rocket camp. Oh my gosh. You really, <laughs> you leaned all the way in. <laughs> There's a YouTuber everyday astronaut mm -hmm. and uh, they have like toddler shirts so my mm -hmm. son and my daughter who's uh just about two both have these like rocket engine shirts that sort of have all the parts of the rocket engine I, i'm pretty into it i, I, I think apparently it's, you are i didn't yeah. expect that but it's and i mean it's funny we watched the launches as well in my house um but i think it's interesting in particular the blowback in the last Week like you know oh billionaires flying themselves to space like f these guys like why are they doing this when they we have like other problems to solve and I get really fired up about it actually because like same as you it wasn't until the SpaceX landing the boosters that I started to really pay attention to space as the next frontier mm -hmm. um, but it does seem like we don't know what the potential is of being right. able to easily get back and forth from space and also eventually be able to get back and forth more cheaply. But it seems like the implications are unbelievably massive on the human race. For our species, yeah. right? And, and to me, I get really <laughs> optimistic about it. Even like Starlink, which is the SpaceX program of setting up satellites to bring internet to everyone in the world. There's a lot of people who don't have access to the internet. And guess what? They're not a part of the modern economy. And like, you know, I believe that intelligence is equally distributed. So you have this huge percentage of the world, no access to the internet, but tons of intelligent people there, tons of people who want to be part of the workforce. And like, this seems like a path towards enabling that. It seems like one of the most amazing things you could dream of. And this is the beginning, right? Like it's, it's kind of right. crazy, the potential. Yeah, I mean, it is. And I think that I'm trying to wrap my head around, around the, the blowback to this 
I, I think that people are not seeing the bigger picture. Um, and I think that what I've noticed, especially in the, in the past couple of years, some people look at the world as zero sum. Whatever progress happens, something bad is happening to someone else. And I, I think the way that the choice of like, you know, billionaires investing money and in going to space versus um, feeding everyone who's hungry, that's a, it's a false choice. If the billionaires didn't go to space, we wouldn't necessarily reallocate that capital. And sending billionaires to space doesn't necessarily take money away from yeah. these other really important problems. And I think that zero summism is kind of like it's a it's a plague on society right now. And I think we really need to get past that um, because the potential for doing new things gets gets held back by that way of thinking. Um, and it kind of bugs me. And I think it it bugs a lot of people who have created companies from nothing yeah. because I think they see they see what happens when you make something new. And I think there's a lot of people out there who maybe have never had that experience. And it's really easy to uh, to be negative or to find something negative in something positive and always focus on the negative thing. And I think it, it hurts progress to do that. Totally. Yeah. I think it's funny because it's like, why didn't you spend this money on other things? It's like, why do we have professional sports? Why do we have Olympics? Why do we have the yeah. entertainment industry? <laughs> like, we don't need those things. Um, and if you were to take the the money from there, yeah, you could feed everyone. But it seems like that's not the problem. It's infrastructure. It's farming. It's energy. It's connection. It's all. It's so many other things. And I saw this quote. I can't remember who said it, but I thought it was really on point. Which is like, it's hard to be a hater if you're a maker. Mm-hmm. Like if you've made stuff and seen what can happen. Um, but not everyone has that experience. And so how do we how do we give more people that experience? How do we let more people be makers, be a part of making things and see what happens when, you know, when you could be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that's that's the opportunity. I I mean, I I totally agree with what you guys are saying. I'm not a space nerd, but appreciate the nerddom that is happening here and also appreciate sort of the um the likening of like creating a company to like exploring a new frontier. I guess the blowback that I have read and can also understand is like some of these billionaires are really just doing it as a flex. They're like, look how much money I have, you know, like that's how, or that's how, and maybe I'm like pulling the Bezos quote out of context, but he said something that was not great. Yeah, he made a big boo boo. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> he like made right a big boo boo. Right? Like, said, um, yeah, right. He's like, I did that on the backs of my customers and my employees, and it's like, dude, stop. Like, I I agree that like the the sort of scientific insights that can be gleaned from this are exponential. But I do think when you have like Bezos making you know public comments you're like oh don't just don't do it so that's where i come down yeah and i think that's totally valid criticism i think that you know both of these launches are isolated launches that are the beginning of something right it's not the end and i think treating it as the outcome or the goal is sort of missing the bigger picture that this is the beginning of an era not like an expression of some billionaires like you know wishes that and and now they've accomplished it and it's over no this this unlocks space for many more people and many more opportunities. So, yeah, yeah. I hope more people come around to see it that way. Uh, I, I think to miss that is kind of sad. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I hope people do too. And I also agree, Sylvia, like I feel like he he made some errors in his uh in his messaging yes. post post landing, <laughs> which is unfortunate because like people should be excited. And he said some other stuff that got completely glossed over. It did. It did. Um, like he made this comment that I thought was so interesting. He's like, well, look, like we have one planet in the solar system that we know is like the planet you want to be on. This is the planet you want to live on. Like, why can't we take the heavy polluting industries and other things and just bring them into space and like still benefit from these things, but have them not hurt our earth. And like, that's not going to happen tomorrow. But like, if you think about it, if it's cheap enough to get up there, there are a lot of things that could be remade in space and not hurt our earth. And that's like an amazing thing, but it was lost because of the comment he made about right, exactly. It got buried. About how he paid for it. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So look, I won't shut up about space. This should not be an episode only about <laughs> space. Um, Colin, what has you talking too loud these days? Oh, lots of things. I'm I'm super excited about our, like, I think the biggest opportunity in our company, we've been kind of quietly growing for like a little while. You know, we started in 2012. We've been quietly growing. This past year, year and a half has been really transformational for our business. And I, I'm really excited about marketing. It's the part of our company that's um, so underdeveloped. And I get excited looking at companies like Wistia and the stuff Wistia is doing with video. Uh, I, I was at an event a few days ago and um, I recorded a, a little video. It was like one of our investors' 10th anniversaries. And I recorded a little video and it was recorded using 180 degree VR camera. So you can watch the video in, in VR and it's, you can't move through the space. But I, I just get excited about all of the, I think, the potential for really kind of immersive and rich marketing uh, for businesses and what that's going to look like over the next few years. So I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot. Um, you can tell I, I bought myself a bunch of like podcasting equipment because <laughs> I'm really excited. I want to do a podcast at some point. So I've just been learning about all this tech that we can use for marketing. Um, because that's uh, that's kind of the next big adventure in the company. That's awesome. You're nerding out on gear, basically. Yeah. That's, what you're talking about. that's great. Well, look, before we get into that, let's take a step back and let's tell people who don't know, like, what is your company? What's Customer IO? What do you all do? Explain it for someone who doesn't know, because our listeners come from all different places. We have entrepreneurs, we have marketers, we have lots of different folks. So for someone who doesn't know, what is Customer IO? Yeah. Um, so I'll throw it out in the in the lingo and then I'll explain the lingo. Perfect. So we're a customer engagement platform for early to mid-stage uh, technology businesses. And what that means is if you are a um, internet company, you have a web or a mobile app and you want to send messages to your customers over email, push notification, SMS, you want to orchestrate your like internal workflows and pass data to your CRM and do all of these things to run your business. Customer.io is the place that has that record of your customer and lets you create and craft this really great experience for them um, that's outside of your app. So everything in your app, you have developers writing code and then everything outside of your app, you know, your marketers and product managers are creating that experience in Customer.io's builder. I'm like, I still have questions. Like, I, I, devil, I definitely got <laughs> some of that. 
Can you give me like, can you give me a scenario in which a business is using customer IO and like, I'm a customer on somebody's website. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, say Um, words. Yeah. Website. Website. (laughs) Domain. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so during the pandemic, there was a big push towards uh, e-learning. Yep. And so a lot of our, we we have a lot of like e-learning and kind of classroom augmentation platforms that use customer IO. And um, I think like taking a course online is a really great example of the power of, of our platform and how people might use it. So you have someone who starts a course and gets halfway through, uh, you can set up an automation to follow up with them to encourage them to finish the course or uh, you know, nudge them along towards the end of it. And I think that a lot of the time in the past, businesses would do this in a way that if you're a recipient, it feels really disconnected from what you've been doing in the app. It feels like the left hand of the business doesn't know what the right hand of the business is doing. And because customer IO is deeply integrated into the product, we have in real time everything that your audience is doing um, inside of your app. And, and so it's, it's really an extension of someone's product experience, not this sort of disconnected like marketing thing yeah. that people receive and they're like scratching their heads like, why is this company sending me this stuff? It's not like the weird chat bot. Like you're talking to me like you know me and you know my user behavior and like how I've been using the product. I mean, that's, that's the opportunity that our customers have once all of their data is flowing into customer IO and... Um, you know, we take data privacy really seriously, so it doesn't become our data. It's always their data. And we sort of sit behind the scenes, helping them orchestrate these experiences. You know, we're not pushing our branding to your customers. Right. I love it. Now that I get it, I fully (laughs) love it. We got it. We got got it. it. We got it. But Colin, so you have such an interesting story. I mean, and you said this a little bit there. Things started quiet. You've been quietly building. Um, where did you start when you started nine years ago? What did you want to build? Was it this or did you evolve your way into this? Yeah, I mean, when we started, my co-founder and I were in New York. We worked at a venture-funded startup over there and he was head of engineering and I was head of product. And the thing that we knew was we really liked big data problems and we found that super interesting. And um, when we talked- Did you write a business plan? We, we did not write a business plan, okay. but this was the time when the lean startup was like really, um, I mean, it was sort of revolutionary at that point. Yeah. And what we did do was we came up with some concepts and some wireframes and started shopping them around and um, showing them to people. And the feedback that we kept getting was like, I don't want another analytics product. Uh, I don't want something that just shows me what pe- my people are doing. If you can help me influence their behavior, that's super interesting to me. And so we heard that a few times and we're like, we think there's a business here. We don't know how big the market is. We don't know who the competitors are. We don't know anything about the space that we're entering into, but we knew that there was a customer need and that we could solve it. And so we, at that point, we started building something and then um, our first version was, was pretty simple and we were. We were really like faking it behind the scenes. 
um, we were writing code to deliver on the, the promise for each customer. They would sort of describe in plain language what they wanted to happen with their data. And we would look at the data and say, is, is there enough here to make this happen? If yes, then let's write a little script to identify these like needle in a haystack people, and then we can trigger these messages to them. And then from there, the product just got a lot more mature, uh, you know, and has continued to mature o- over the years where everything's automatic now. It does a lot more. Uh, we added different channels. So, you know, initially it was just email. Then we added push, SMS, um, webhooks, Slack. There's a ton wow. that you can do in the product now. And yeah, I think like when we started, the goal was really just to provide an income for myself and my co-founder. And uh, as we made more progress, our belief grew. And you know, certainly the ambition that we had for the company and the way that I think about my role is I'm a steward of the company. I'm not building the company um, kind of to serve my needs. I'm here to serve the company. And I realized that the potential for the company was much larger than we originally expected. And we're, you know, about a hundred plus people now on the team. And we think the market is like really, really huge. And so we're continuing to kind of step on the gas and build an even bigger business. I mean, the evolution is similar to us, right? Like Brendan and I thought we were going to do this. And my dad asked us the goal for the business. And I said, the goal is to make 60 grand a year. That way, Brendan and I can each make 30 and we can survive. And he laughed. <laughs> He's like, I think you should shoot bigger. <laughs> um, but it, like this progressive, I, I have had this feeling many times over the years where it's like, oh, when we hit a million in revenue, I was like, wow, Wistia is a million in revenue. Like, that's crazy. I can't believe mm. we can do this. Like, let's go for 10. And then when we hit 10, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe we can do this. And like every milestone you get to, you're like, it's this weird thing. Like, I didn't, I thought this was some magical number you know, that I, would I be able to run a company like that? And then actually like, as we got there, it's like, oh, I can do this. Like, well, what mm-hmm. can this become? And also similar, like realize the market was going to be a lot bigger than I ever thought possible. Yeah. When I think back to 2013, one of the best things that happened to me as a CEO was failing to raise a series A. Um, way back then, you know, we just had a few customers and one of our angel investors, we took some angel investment and one of our angel investors encouraged me to go out to talk to VCs to raise a series A. And I got, I got crucified by- What's, uh, what's, a, what's a series A? Um, a series A is the sort of first big round of funding where you get professional investors in. Um, the size, I don't know what the size would have been at that point, five like to a, $10 million. Maybe even less, yeah. Yeah, but way, way back then they were tiny. Now it's like people raise huge amounts of money on an idea. Um, Times they've really changed, Colin. They've changed around here. <laughs> I, really grown up. I've got ideas. I'm just letting you both know. I, I've got oh, a you lot can, of ideas. If you have ideas, Sylvie, you can probably raise 30 mil. All right, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> but, but back then you couldn't raise 30 mil on just ideas. And uh, one of the things I struggled to do was to convince people that we had 100 million a year business. Um, I just didn't see the path, and I was like, "I yeah, we're just we're just trying to we're trying to get like ten customers, and like if I take the amount of money our, those ten customers were paying, which was like twenty dollars a month, 
and I looked at like how many customers would we need to have a hundred million a year business? It was just like too many customers. And I couldn't see the path. And because I couldn't, I couldn't sort of convince myself. I couldn't go out and try to raise money and put on this like song and dance and convince these professional investors that I could build this real business. Um, and so we just failed completely. And um, I, I went away from that and, you know, we almost killed the business because I spent so much time and effort trying to raise this Series A. And so we had to really figure out how to survive at that point. But it, it sort of, it was a really helpful experience because it, it made me, well, one, it, it gave me that first understanding of, hey, there, there is some path. So it showed me that like, maybe there could be, I just didn't know what it was at that point. Um, and it also helped me sort of focus on the company, not on people outside of the company's evaluation of the company. And if I knew we had something good and I just spent my energy making that good thing better, I knew it would work out in the end. But trying to look outside for external validation, whenever I've done that, I've never gotten it. <laughs> and so I stopped, I stopped doing it. Yeah, I love that. I feel like that's like such quintessential advice, which is like, you can spend time on the things that you think someone else will want or if someone else will validate, or you can spend time on the things that you think will actually deliver value for the customer, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to get tricked, especially as the company is growing and you're like, oh, should I raise money? Oh, if I raise money, I'll help a lot of other customers. I just have to like position this business for these investors and get ready to go and hit this milestone, yada, yada. And then you don't hit the milestone or it's slightly off or it turns out that the market has shifted and you can't raise money. And you're like, what did I just do? Like, I just wasted so much time versus like almost, I've had the same similar experiences where it's like doing something for external validation versus like just doubling down on the things I think will make the business better. And like, it always, 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 always is better to focus in on, you know, the making the customer experience better, making the mm -hmm. employee experience better, focusing on the things inside the business, making the business run better, um, always ends up just paying more dividends. Hmm. Well, so look, you, you, wait, you wait, started, wait, 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 yeah. Oh, you were going to do it. <laughs> Sorry. I've yeah. Okay. What? No. To transition. I would, well, I was just going to ask you, you failed to raise the series a, and then you're like, well, wait, like, I can kind of imagine like the future of this company, but what was the moment that like things kind of turned around? Oh, um, so yeah, I think I think it happened in stages, right? Like at that time, I started to meet people who are just a little bit ahead of us, including Chris Savage. Um, Ooh, and Ooh, hello, uh, hello. You know, I think that there was a sort of cohort of people. We were in New York, and there were a few different companies in Boston who were you know, several years ahead of where we were. And I started to see these alternate paths to accomplish what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and that gave me more confidence when we were not doing the traditional route. Like we raised a little money, but then we stopped. And then we raised a little more and then we, we kind of stopped. And not doing the Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, you know, pre-IPO, mega raise, and then like IPO the company when we weren't on that path anymore, we needed to kind of figure out how are we going to build a big, great 
successful company? And what, you know, what does great even look like for us? Uh, and what are the expectations that we have on ourselves for growth, you know, team size? Like, do we want to triple the team in a year or do we want to grow ahead of revenue? Do we want to be profitable? These are like big, big decisions. And, and the decision we came up with was we wanted to invest every extra dollar into making the business better. So we didn't want to be profitable. Um, and I think like I kind of mentioned earlier on, we just, we focused on building a really great product and not building a big, big brand, not built, building a brand that had a big footprint. And when I think about the company today, we have a product that is much larger than the brand that supports it. And there's other companies that do the complete opposite. They go out, they make a huge splash, they get tech crunch, they build this, or I don't know if people still get tech crunch, do they? Mm, they get uh -uh. TikToked. They get TikToked. <laughs> and then, you know, everybody knows who they are, but like the product is garbage. And we kind of took the opposite approach, but now we're really far behind on the brand. Like we already have a brand that people love, but not a lot of people know us. Yeah. Can we let, so you, if I can sum up and tell me if I'm saying too much here, Colin, mm. but like you all were going along, you had this vision, you had the angel money, you failed to raise the series A, you doubled down on figuring out how to make the product really good. And you had some years where like growth was slow. Like even mm -hmm. when you were smaller, you connected and figured out how to make your product like exactly what your customers want. You found this like part of the market that people weren't operating in. And as you did that, you started to grow really rapidly um, mm -hmm. without any outside funding. But you really haven't invested, just back to the initial thing you're talking about, like you haven't invested that much in marketing. Is Correct. that like a fair assessment? of like so much of your growth has been from product? Yeah, product and from referrals, really. Uh, and in the past, we had a couple of years, I think like in, in the middle of the life of the company to date, so we're nine years old, in years, you know, five, six, seven, we had a lot of technical scaling issues, which created a really bad customer experience. And one of the things that taught me is like speed is a feature. If your product mm -hmm. is fast, and things happen really rapidly, people really trust that your product is doing the right thing. And we went through a period of time where we couldn't deliver on the speed thing. Hmm. And that caused the perception of, of our company and product to really suffer. And then we fixed that a few years ago and then developed a uh, what we call a premium offering, but it's a sales-led and customer success-assisted deal that we sell to customers who are a little larger than um, you know a three-person company usually. So we've been able to grow over the past year. Um, we re-accelerated the business and we're at over 70% year-over-year growth, which um, we crossed 20 million a year in annual recurring revenue in, in March, growing 70% year-over-year. It's a pretty big, it's, it's huge. like the numbers yeah. are big. Yeah. And it took us a while to get into the position where there was more money coming in than we could deploy. And so one of the big challenges in the business has been, how do we spend the extra money that's coming in well to make the business better and more successful next year? Yeah. Because I think we could just take it off the table and say, great, you know, everyone's getting a bonus. 
But I think that that would be a mistake. Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I think that it it you're like uh, cutting the business off at the knees if you take too much money out of the business, and especially if the business has room to grow. Yeah, we think that the the potential for our business is huge, and that we're like just at the beginning. Um, There's so much more we can build to deliver value to customers. There's just more we want to do in every part of the business. Yeah. But it's also interesting because it's, I know, I know the pain that you're talking about, which is like growing a lot and then having the opportunity to spend a lot. And it actually is a weird thing because, you know, if you have an incremental $2 million to spend one year, you go through and you like figure out your budget and you're really careful about like exactly what the hires are, exactly what the things are. But if that's 10 million Mm -hmm. additional, Spending it well actually does get harder. If it's a larger number, it gets harder um, to figure out how do I spend this w- like to grow, but spend it on the right stuff, um, on the right people, on the right projects, and how do I take on enough things that are you know keeping me focused where I want to go versus just like creating more distractions for myself. And I, I don't have an answer on this. Um, it's an interesting challenge that I didn't know we would face, right? Like when we started right. growing faster, and we were bigger. We we're like, oh, this is awesome. Then I was like, wait a second. Wait, we hired 15 people last year. I have to hire 45 people this year. Like, how am I going to do that well? And it's right. this interesting part of growth that like, I recognize it's a champagne problem that you have. Um, but, but it also is like, there's not a lot of great resources for how to think about this stuff because the speed of learning has to change so much too. Because you mm-hmm. go from, you know, the previous 10 million incremental spend might have been over three, four years, and now you're going to do it in a year. It's just, it's a good challenge you have. Yeah, I mean, we went from having nobody explicitly dedicated to hiring to now having two people who are dedicated to like hiring new people. Yeah. Because our pace of hiring became like the limiting factor for the things that we wanted to do. And then once we started hiring more people, we realized we had more need for people ops. So we like had to add another person there. And all of these things that I never expected when the company was was five people, I was like, how could we ever need more than 50? Right? Yeah. Uh, but the dreams keep getting bigger. And then, you yeah. know, pandemics happen. And uh, <laughs> you have to deal with that too. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the pandemic is what got me thinking about it. But you all were remote before COVID and have obviously continued to be remote and have hired. You've gone from, you know, the group of companies that were like, hey, remote's the future, everyone. Look look over here. We're going to teach you about remote to everyone being forced to do this. And then, you know, some companies like Wistia, we've reopened to a degree. And so some people can go back in the office. And um, I guess I'm thinking like, what have you observed through the last year in terms of remote work? Like, how has the pandemic changed it? What have you learned about remote work that you didn't know pre-pandemic? And I think the one asterisk that, that I would always put on remote work in, in a conversation like this is that this is not remote. Working in a pandemic is not what I signed up for. It's not what any of the people on our team signed up for. And if you're at a business that's been forced into this, that's not what remote work is. And you see a lot of the, the writing on this coming at it and, and sort of painting remote with that brush. But that's a, really a misrepresentation of, of what it is. You know, the way that we've always looked at it is the freedom to work 
in whatever location makes you most productive. Uh, you know, when I was at the beginning of the pandemic, forced to work in my basement office where like slugs were finding a way in and the kids <laughs> were, you know, stuck at home running above my head. Yeah. And, you know, pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter all the time. That's that's not my ideal place to work. So, you know, I think I'll sort of first say that. Um, the other thing is we always had these in-person retreats, which are a really critical part of any, any remote team. Because if you don't know the people you're working with, then it makes it hard to weather the challenging times. You get these disagreements and you kind of misunderstand your coworkers. And so we were having a company-wide retreat every six months where everybody would get together with and spend some time with, the whole, with everybody, company. Okay. whole company. Yeah. I mean, basically everybody who was able to come um, would, would come to those. And we haven't had one of those in a year and a half. And I think since the last retreat, the company has gone from, you know, 50 something people to over a hundred people. And the majority of our team now has not met yeah. each other in person. And so it's, it's still so important. We just haven't been able to do it. Um, and so while we've survived because we were doing uh, this before, yeah. we're certainly not thriving in the way that we would love to be thriving uh, culture-wise as a remote and very distributed team. So if things were back to normal and COVID's gone and we have herd immunity, which hopefully is sadly we'll reach it with Delta, I think, but... Um, like, would you say then you would go back to, you know, doing retreats for the whole company twice a year? Or would you do retreats for the senior management team on a, like a more regular basis? Like Sa what would, what would be your prescription? Savage is trying to take notes. Savage is trying to take <laughs> yeah, notes I'm, right I'm, I'm actively, you know, thinking about these yeah. things myself. So how, how would you think about that? So our, our leadership team gets together once a quarter in, in pre-COVID times. Our, our leadership team gets together once a quarter to discuss the next quarter. And we get together in person to do that. and then. What we'll probably move to is one whole company get together each year and then departmental get togethers for like the other retreat or as needed. Um, I think that the logistics, you know, we we're talking about like what changes as your company gets bigger. The logistics of getting all the humans fed in the same place yeah, becomes just a nightmare. And um, the, the days of us just being able to split up into a couple groups or like go out to the same restaurant altogether. It's just much harder to do that when, when the numbers are that much bigger. And it's really important to see all of your colleagues, but the smaller groups are still, you know, are, are going to be a, a better place to build deeper relationships. And the whole company get together is like the, you know, making sure you get FaceTime with everyone in the company. I've heard from, from other folks that, uh, we're fully remote pre-pandemic that like they, after their retreats, they would often fire people. Does that happen to you? What? Oh, you dropped uh, well, them. I'll just, <laughs> well, I'll, you know what? I'll, maybe I'll just give you more color and then you can decide if you want to answer it or not, which is mm. this like funny thing that can happen where um, when people are fully remote, like you can't see how people are when they're exiting a conference room. You can't see if someone's like dejected walking through the hallway, like whatever. And so you don't know to ask questions about how people are like interacting with each other. And like, it's something that like, I had definitely built up a sixth sense at Wistia. I'd see someone walking somewhere. I'm like, they're not doing well. What's going on? 
And I'd go ask their manager, ask them, and you'd you'd figure this thing out, which you can't figure out when people are remote. And so what I had heard is that like after those retreats, sometimes you realize like, oh, problems are bigger than you thought. Have you ever Mm. discovered that problems are ever bigger than you thought? Well, I, I think that if there are people who are really struggling, you probably... Like I've always felt nervous about having them come to the retreat because mm. people form these like deeper relationships with each other. And if someone's like yeah. on their way out, right They're maybe they're causing problems in the company or maybe they're just like on their last, their, their last straw with their manager or whatever. Um, my approach would be you want them out of the company before the retreat, not after. Um, but I think certainly you learn a lot about people during retreats. Uh, I can't think of a time when we, you know, went into a retreat thinking like, this person's great. And then we met them at the retreat and they're like, uh-uh, they, they need to leave. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they bring down the culture or they like, you know, are a jerk or whatever. Or they, they trashed their hotel room and, <laughs> you know, just left a mess everywhere they went. They pretend that they're rock stars and just like destroy the whole place. And then you're like, well, I guess they're not they're not a fit at customer I.O. Oh, my God. That would actually be a very funny uh, premise for a movie like company retreat. Mm-hmm. You have that one that one guy. Anyhow, that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> so, I guess my question that is, if you can see this stuff coming, um, what is your advice to companies who have been forced into being remote and like don't have that same you know, that sixth sense that I had about like whether or not teams are in a good place or people are in a good place like remotely. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's all all the same stuff that, that businesses are doing when they're co-located. Uh, we do whole company surveys a couple times a year with CultureAmp. Yep. Um, we use them for that. They're and then great. part, you know, part of the responsibility of everyone's manager is to get that pulse on what's going on. Um, I think the stress associated with you know life disruptions during the pandemic caused us to be well i mean we've we've already been really really flexible i think that it's caused us to sort of uh force more time off on the team um so we we added a couple summer days i think this friday is like one of our summer fridays and then i think it's every couple weeks now um we're doing that and then we added some benefits with um, Modern Health, I believe, is the company. What Modern is that? Uh, people can get some counseling, and oh, they cool. can talk to someone if they're if they've got like stressful stuff happening. That's awesome. Uh, and so we we just you know I think we realized that taking it easy on the team and not not pushing as hard during times of of like hyper stress is a way that we can not burn everyone out. Uh, I think that, you know, and we, we were coming from the best of circumstances. Like our team was already remote. Yeah. Everyone probably, they might've been in a co-working space, but you know, most people in the company were working, were working from home. I think the thing that threw people for a loop was like their home environment got disrupted because their kids who were not at home were all of a sudden at home with them. Um, and yeah, I, I, so I think that for companies that are now in this position and if they haven't figured it out by now and they're still struggling, I would start looking at like, how do you get a pulse on, on your company and the areas of your company that are like not doing well and try to understand why. Um, it's tough though. We don't, there's no precedent here. <laughs> like 
We haven't done this before. But yeah, totally. To bring it back to the beginning of the convo and space and kind of what you guys were saying before, this is just the beginning of remote first or remote period, right? Like th- there's an opportunity here for folks to like embrace it and get better and figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, that's completely right. It, it's it's interesting because like I, I always like to hear from folks who were remote before this. And what mm-hmm. did you learn through this experience? Um, because I obviously have learned so much and it's so, so much of our company is different in terms of how we operate and what the culture is. And, you know, some of those things, fortunately, we had done like culture amp, but there's other just kind of like casual systems that we hadn't created for, you know, how to get people more engaged in Slack and how to get uh, more feedback coming and like all that kind of stuff. And we do live in a world now where everyone knows that remote work is possible. So whether or not, like, if your company is requiring you to go back, you don't want to go back, you're not going to go back, right? Um, Yeah, basically, like, I I took it as my responsibility to create stability as the CEO, like, that when people are at work, or they're, they're doing their job, that, you know, we had an opportunity and a responsibility to be the thing that created stability for them in their life. Because... Unlike normal times where it's just like one person's having a bad day or is having some like life thing, everybody in the company is having a life thing at the same time. And so if work is contributing to that, if work is sort of unsettling for them, then that's, that's just not going to be sustainable. So I kind of tried to make myself much more visible as the CEO, like uh, especially at the beginning, I'm, I'm a little less visible now. Things, things seem sort of to have stabilized but in the beginning of the pandemic i was recording a video like every week for the team while i was like on a walk with my kids or something like that and i saw it as important to just sort of be really visible show that i'm not freaking out (laughs) so that other people sort of had permission to sort of stay calm too love that love the advice of modeling behavior to um really just like set the example and that's always i mean one of the things I learned over and over building this business is like, if you tell people to do something, you don't do it yourself, like it's not going to work. If you actually model it, it will be replicated, right? Like it's like mm-hmm. the classic um, actions speak louder than words. Well, look, Colin, there's so many things I want to talk to you about and I we are running out of time. But um, just really quick, can you tell people about the the fundraising process that you just went through? And I think there's like still a tiny bit of room left. Is that true in your in your republic? Um, yeah, there's, funding. there's a tiny bit of room left. So we did, um, we took a really unconventional approach and, and this all comes back to like my thesis on how do we, how do we kind of bring the perception of the company up to the same level as the quality of the product. And we can't compete with money against these companies that have hundreds of millions of dollars in investment. So I thought, well, what if we let our customers become owners of the company and other people who are excited by what we're doing? What if we let them own a piece of the company rather than, you know, big, deep-pocketed people who are already wealthy? And um, what really excited me about that is, so far, we've had over 2,200 people invest in Customer.io. We've raised $4.6-plus million from all of those people. and they now have our back. They want us to be successful and, and to win. And um, it was a really hard 
uh, you know, it, it was more effort than than I had expected, but it was totally worth it. And the exercise was it was not a fundraising exercise. It was like a community building exercise. And the exchange is they're giving us money and we're giving them part of the company. Um, there's a little bit left. I may do this again, like at, in the future. You can do it once a year. Um, and as part of that, you have to disclose a lot about the business. So if you want to know a bunch of inside data all about the, the company, details. yeah, they're all there. <laughs> our, we had to publish our audited financials, and uh, we shared a bunch of metrics. It's awesome. It's been very cool to see, and I, I'm really looking forward to like asking you about it in six months and a year and two years. And like when you have this legion of folks who are owners, what happens, right? Because it's like, you're not public, but it's like, that's one of the benefits of being public is anyone can be an investor and, and it, that means they can root for you. So I'm, I'm really excited to see how it goes for you. I did like model United Nations when I was in high school. This is kind of like <laughs> that model, right. model public company. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. That, oh, wow. that, that is that's what good. it is. Love that. Um, Colin, thank you so much for being here with us today. And um, I'm sorry we couldn't do this in person. I know that you were flying out here and we missed this opportunity by like three days. Um, yeah. But it was great to see you. I hope to see you in person soon. And um, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. And nice to meet you, Sylvie. Yeah, nice to meet you too. You know, it's funny. The first thing Colin said is, I just watched the episode of you guys in person and I, I'm ready to be present. I'm ready to be my authentic self. Yeah. And I feel like he came out of the gate doing that. Yeah, when he came in, he was like, I, I know that you guys have said that people tend to open up after, you know, you stop the mics and, and the recording is over. So I, I'm really going to try to like bring that to the top of the episode. But then the funny thing was the episode ended and then I was like, hey, Colin, hey, Colin, tell me about the <laughs> like the aware air quality thing that you're doing. Tell me, and I just like we just I just did the same thing. I did the thing where the episode ends. And I just have more questions for somebody. But that's great. Yeah. You know what? That's why we have uh, we have guests back on. So maybe maybe yeah. Colin's gonna come back in uh twenty twenty two. Two twenty twenty one? Two. What year is 22 it? Twenty two probably, yeah. It would what be a little today? much if it was it's like, Hey Colin, he's here, and then we did this riff about it, and then it was like next <laughs> right. episode Colin's back. Too but, soon, too soon, yeah. Colin, too soon. But I do think um, it's like, you know, we only talked about this very briefly at the end, but it, it is worth checking out the fundraising stuff that they did because it's it's very yeah. similar to what Sahil did. Um and I think it's like the reason to raise money, not just to run the business, but to actually get more people invested in it, not just financially, but like emotionally, right, is a pretty interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, he described it as, you know, a sort of community building effort first and foremost, which I think is is fascinating. And totally, yeah, as soon as you brought it up, and he was talking about it, I was like, googling, like, how might I purchase so customer IO, you got another fan. Got another fan over here. You gonna invest, Sylvie? You gonna get in on this thing? Think I'm gonna do it. Think I'm gonna double there you go. down. Double down. To use a little okay. AC term, <laughs> double down. <laughs> um, yeah. Yep. I'm gonna split these aces. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. To bring it back though to something <laughs> from the interview, I I really appreciated, you know, beginning with the space conversation, but like if you apply what you and Colin said more broadly, you said, 
you know, like this is the beginning, sort of like space exploration is at the beginning. And like, yes, there will be haters, but like, why not kind of lean into this enormous opportunity? And I do feel like that's something that we talk about a lot on this show is just like, why don't you consider that this thing might be effing great? This business, this new marketing strategy, this content, like why not consider that it has the potential to be great and then see where you go from there? Yeah, it's never going to be great if you don't give it a chance. Right. And that's like the, the entrepreneurial journey of, I believe I can make this thing if I work with these other people on it. And I believe I'll keep at it to actually make it a possibility. And I think it really does come back to this idea of if you can be a maker and believe you can you can make things, you can change things. And if you haven't had that experience, it can be hard to open your mind to being that optimistic or thinking that big. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's like super motivating in any entrepreneurial journey when you can have that optimistic viewpoint and believe that you're going to do something um, that hasn't been done before. You don't know how you'll do it, but you believe that you can do it. And like, yeah, I don't know. It's some of the most exciting things about building a company or tackling a big project or doing a creative endeavor, I think is like this idea of going from the beginning to making something that people didn't believe you could do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like dare to be great. That sounds corny, but it's like, it's not. I guess I wish more people took the approach of believing that this stuff can be great. Yeah. What would happen in our world if they did? And look at Colin. Yeah. Dare to be great. Dare to be great. Homeboy's great. Yeah. So listeners, you too can be great. You can. All you have to do <laughs> is like yeah. and subscribe to the show. Yeah. We'd love also your feedback. Also, email us at ttlpod at wits.com. We love all feedback of all shapes and sizes. Um, and of course, you can go to Wistia Studios at wistia.com and see more of the great content that is coming out. A Better Workplace is our podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've got show business, an entire course on everything you need to know about making a show and tons of other great content coming out. So stay tuned for more. And thanks for tuning in. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia, hosted by Chris Savage, produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day, executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.